Uh, man, it's a great Sunday. I know it's not sunny, but that's okay. We get four days a year. We don't get sunshine. It's all right. This is just one of them. Uh, I'm excited this morning because God has just been doing so many neat things. And uh, my brother's here. I'm super stoked about that. So he's here. And I was praying this weekend uh, for the Brocks. And John's here. And I'm like, what? what? God's answering prayers. It's super cool. Don't swarm him. He's going to go home afterwards. He just he wants to be here. And so I'm excited about what God's doing this morning. And I've been praying all week over this sermon. And as I was praying over this sermon, I was just kind of thinking about as we get to the end of 1 John, John's just doing some very uh, just common things that you see that take place in, in a letter. Now, I'll be honest. I'm not good at writing. I'm really bad at it. If you've gotten a birthday card from me, you're all, it looks like a five-year-old wished me happy birthday. No, that's just Pastor Simon. I'm just not that good at it. I remember in high school, um, I just struggled with, with grammar and spelling and all that. So I would write sloppy on purpose. You ever do that? Like if I write it sloppy, they'll never know that I misspelled the word. Well, I, I, I did that through most of high school, and as an experiment one time in my junior year, I wrote an entire paper that didn't have one actual word on it and got a C. <laughs> Says something, doesn't it? But all that being said is when I turned, uh, just before 30, I went back to school, and I had to relearn how to write and how to communicate and how to write letters and how to look like I was intelligent. And I remember... As I was learning things, I'm like, oh, I wish I would have learned this when I was, you know, in the fifth grade. And then I, we, as our boys were going up, we said, you know, there's some things you need to know about writing. And as I learned them, I was able to impart those as if I had known them my whole life. And one was, you know, when you start a letter, when you start something, you're going to say, this is what I'm going to tell you. And then the second part is, this is what I'm going to tell you. And the third part is, this is what I told you. And so you just, you, I'm going to tell you this, I'm telling you this, and this is what I told you. And that's how you write a letter and you get the information across and it's not lost. Now you say, now, well, Simon, why are we talking about that? Because that's exactly what John is doing as he is wrapping up his letter to these church uh, these little church homes, that's what he's doing. And he's going to keep moving through through this. Now, I want to let you know up front, I know we're jumping ahead a small section and we're kind of wrapping up the letter. We're going to tag the back of it next week at Easter. So I am skipping over a few verses. I'm going to um, talk about those on Easter. So I, I'm, we're going to hit the whole book, just the last part's a little out of order. So we're going to be in 13 through 21 this week. Now, when we started the series, we called it We Know. And you may be asking, I, I haven't figured out why we're calling it, we know. Because John uses that phrase 15 times in these five chapters. And he keeps saying, we know, we know, we know. Over and over again, as Christians, in Christ, as children of the Most High God, there are things that we know. And what we find is that this, at this section that we're moving into right now, He's going to use this phrase seven times. Almost half of the times he uses it is in this passage that we're in today. And the thing that we need to know is that um, we can know Jesus. That means we can know the God of love. And so when we die, when we pass from this side of eternity to the next, we do not have to fear. We do not have to worry. We do not have to doubt what will happen to us. We can live with confidence. And that's what he's telling us. And so what I'd love to do is open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, we have free Bibles for you in the back. We'd love for you to grab that, love for you to have that. Uh, if you don't have those, you can follow along on the screen or your device, whatever you're most comfortable with. All right. 
I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. Jesus, that's just been, uh, it's been a great week. And I ask is that we press into this section of Scripture as we are wrapping up uh, the larger portion of John's ending, that you would open ears and eyes and hearts to hear the truth of who you are, that you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, that you are God, that you would let those that are here that know you and love you rest in the assurance and the confidence that we have, that we have eternal life in your Son. For those that don't know you, Lord, I ask that you would open their ears and their eyes and their hearts to know you and to come to you. Lord, I ask as I preach this message this morning that you would allow me to get out of the way, to not be a distraction to the message that you have today, but Holy Spirit, you would speak through me, that I would not say what I shouldn't, <laughs> that I should, I should say what I should, and that you would work through this and that you would be glorified ultimately through all of it. We love you. We pray all this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. You know what I love about John? He, he speaks to us in a way that's easy to understand. And he says, I'm going to tell you why I'm writing this letter. I'm not going to make it complicated. I'm not going to make you guess. I'm not going to make it, you know, this weird nebulous idea or thought. He's saying, I'm writing this letter so that you would know that you have eternal life. He's writing to Christians in the church that they would know they have eternal life. Now, he does this because and we've talked about this over the last few months that that was being questioned because of these false teachers, this Gnostic message, and he has been breaking apart what they have been teaching for the last five chapters of this book. He's been tearing apart what has been going on and all the teaching about how, who Jesus is and, and what he's, who he is and who he isn't, and he's been breaking down like their different thoughts on the physical world, the spiritual world, and where they lie, and what it means to live as a Christian, um, the idea of sin and what that looks like in the person life. And so as you break down this section, I started seeing that he was breaking them into groups of what the gospel does in the Christian's life. And so he says, this is what the gospel does. And there's four areas that he breaks this up into. And there's we know statements or you can know statements within all of it. The first one is this, the gospel gives us eternal life. He he is going to put the conclusion all together. It's the exclamation point at the end of the letter. What happens to us after this life is the thing that we talk about all the time. We want to know. He has made the case for eternal life lies in the eternal God. If you want eternal life, it needs to be rooted and sourced in the thing where there is eternal life. And that is God. He's talked about that. 
It only comes from placing your faith and life in Jesus Christ, the eternal God, where real life started and where real life comes from. It's not based on works of man, as if we were able in some way to earn God's favor, as if there was really ever any life in us before Christ, let alone eternal life. Because if you think that works can do it, there's this gnawing question all the time that just looms, doesn't it? Did I do enough? Am I good enough? Do I need to do more? Am I lacking in this area? And it creates this, this frustration of never knowing if you have quite the security that you want in who you are in God. If we are left to our own abilities, let's be honest, we're in trouble, aren't we? We don't have the ability in and of ourselves to save ourselves. And if we keep thinking that we can try or earn God's favor, we're going to be on shaky ground all the time. He would say in verse 13 that if we believe in the Son of God... Now, it's not just that we believe in the person of Jesus, that Jesus was a man, and we talked about this, but it's also that he is the deity, the deity of Jesus, that he is God, that he is the Christ, that he is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, completely. That's who he is, and you have to have both if you're going to have the Christ. And without that, there is a problem called sin and called death. That we would not trust in our lives, but we would trust in his life. See, that's where it is. We have placed our life in his, not in our own. When we stand before the Lord, we're not going to say, well, look at what I've done, Lord. Look how great I am, Lord. No, we're going to say, look what Jesus has done for me through your grace, through your mercy. That's what we're going to put our salvation in. And for those of, who have done this, we can have security. We can have assurance. You see, these, these churches all over the, the region of Ephesus, they were doubting this. It's like, we just don't have to doubt. Don't believe the lies of the world that they're pouring in, saying that you can't know. You need to know this special hidden knowledge that can only exist in this one area. It's like, no, you can't do that. Well, here's the second thing that the gospel does. It gives us access. He hears us. We can pray. Verses 14 through 17 talk about that. Now, maybe you've noticed, I, I keep talking about this idea of, like, I'll say, the God of the universe, and I, and I say, we should sit in that, that we get to pray, and the God of the universe hears us. And, and, I, and I keep bringing it up because I think it's powerful. The God who spoke all things into existence, the God who said, before there was time, I will create time. Before there was any molecules, before there was anything, before there was planets, before there was a universe, there was this being named God who existed, who was perfect in every way, and then he spoke, and everything that wasn't was, and that he holds all things together, that without him the world would be chaos. He holds our very fiber and being together of who we are. He allows all the planets to spin on the axis, and if they were off just a degree, we'd all burn up or freeze. And yet this God who is so powerful, who is so mighty, who is holding all things together, yet he hears me, he, he, he acknowledges my voice in some way that I can go to this God and he doesn't reject me. That's a powerful thing to understand that the gospel gives us access where we once didn't have access. 
And think of the most important person you know and how you'd love to meet them someday and then realize that they are nothing compared to the God of the universe. And that he loves you and cares for you and has gone to great lengths to have a relationship with you. That he is so great that we shouldn't, he shouldn't pay attention to him first and foremost. But secondly, because of our sin, we shouldn't even be allowed to speak to him because of his holiness. He is so holy, he is so perfect, he is so pure that we shouldn't be allowed to be in his presence. Meaning, he is so perfect and that we are so not perfect that, that we can't be in that perfection because all it does is highlight the brokenness of who we are and our sin in our lives. But John tells us that we can have confidence that we can go before this great and amazing God. It would say so in, in Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That we can come to his throne without fear of wrath and judgment as Christians. Because that's been paid for by Jesus on the cross already. That his wrath has been absorbed. That his wrath has been paid for in full. That we have received that. He's taken that from us. Died on the cross so we wouldn't have to. So when we go to him, we don't fear that. When he sees us, he sees the blood of his son that washes us clean. And so what we can do is we can approach the throne with boldful reverence. And what I mean by bold is that we can go to places that we once couldn't before, that we have access that we once didn't. I don't know if I remember a few weeks ago, I showed a picture of President Kennedy and JFK Jr. playing underneath the desk, right? That is the access we have, and that as a child that we can go to our Father in the same way that we can be there in areas that we shouldn't be, but now because we are a child of God, we have access and abilities that we once didn't have, but with reverence because he is the most perfect and powerful being in the universe who holds life and death in his hands. You see the tension that takes place there? I remember um, my brothers and I, we used to wrestle with my dad, and, you know, he's a, he was a powerful man, and we would wrestle, and we think that we were doing well. And the, the funny part was we all knew at any moment he could stop that wrestling match like that, and we're done, and put us down to the ground. There was a reverence of knowing that our dad could do that, that he was strong and powerful and that we weren't. Even when he was like way old and we were older too, you just kind of felt like, I think he could stop this at any moment. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> now, here's the problem with a passage when it talks about prayer and asking and getting when we ask for things. We've got to just kind of talk about this for a second. We can read this at times and say, oh, well, God will give me whatever want, whenever I want. He's like genie. I'm like Aladdin. Give me my stuff, God. You owe me. I, I, I went to church. You owe me. I tithed. You owed me. And we can pretend that that's how God acts with us, that he is at our beck and whim no matter what. And if he doesn't answer, he's a bad God then. And if he's a bad God, I'll punish him by rebelling and doing what I want to do. If you're not good, God. So we do that. We see that all the time. We see that if I do these things, then God is in my pocket and he owes me. And that's not true. See, that's where the word of faith movement and the prosperity gospel make their wrong turn. They think that God owes them because they've done these things. God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. That's what makes his grace so amazing. That's what makes his mercy so amazing that we did not earn it or deserve it. It's out of his goodness and his love that we've received that. 
And so what happens is that we, we start to think that prayer is really kind of all about us. This, this, this is about me. It's about what I want, what I desire, my will. And it's not. See, it's not about us. We know that the chief end of man is to glorify God with our whole life, that he would be honored and that we would not be. I mean, if you start to look at how the angels respond to God, how the angels respond when Jesus showed up, you know, they'll, they'll sit up and say, holy, 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 as they sing to him, as they see his majesty, as they see his glory, as they see his power, they want to bring him glory and honor. They don't want any. They want to push that towards God all the time. What happens when the, the birth of Christ up? Glory to God in the highest, right? They're lifting his name up. They want to make sure that the world and everyone in the world knows that our God is the most amazing thing and he should always receive all the glory and we, sh- and we should not. Like, and where we try to glean glory, where we try to take glory is called sin because we're flipping it upside down and thinking for some, there's something great and wonderful about who we are. See, but John tells us in verse 14 where, the, the, where it lies and where we need to understand. It says, according to his will. See, he tells us right there, it's according to his will. Whose will? His will, not our will. Jesus shows this example to us multiple times. In the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, uh, 10, it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke twenty-two forty-two, not my will, but your will, right? Take this cup if you can, but not my will, Lord. I don't want to go through this pain and die, but I will submit to your will as he is praying to him. See, prayer is about submitting to God's will. Prayer is not that we change God's mind to our will, but that God changes our mind to his will. That he is shaping us and changing us and conforming us into the image of his son. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, prayer is the means that God uses to give his people what he wants. Like, oh, that's good. Now, the next two verses are super difficult. I just want to acknowledge it right now. The next two verses are hard. And there's a lot of theologians that have gone, it means this. And then I was like, it means this. And there's some theologians like, we don't know, so I'm not going to preach on it. <laughs> there's a lot of views on what's going on with this passage, and it's hard to understand. I'm going to read it, and we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to tell you, as I have studied this, this is where I land. Now, I've also let you know, this is not the main thrust of this particular sermon, but it's connected to it, so we have to talk about it. In the app, I've given you a resource that you can look at. It's got a chart with some different views and opinions on what that looks like with Scripture that backs on either side. So I'm giving you stuff, but I'm not going to make it the thrust. So let's read it. Here we go. Fun times, 16 through 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay. So the question is, what sin leads to death and what sin doesn't lead to death? That's the question, right? Now, as we have been going through 
the book of 1 John, there's this thing that John keeps saying over and over and over again, that if you're a follower of Christ, we don't keep sinning. That if you are a follower of Christ, we're not going to live that way. There's a pattern to our lives now as we submit to Christ that looks different. We're not perfect, but God is working through our lives, and he's taking us from one step to the next in who we are as individuals. So you've got to keep that in mind. And so when you look at what is the sin that doesn't lead to death, it's the sin that's been forgiven by Jesus Christ. We know in 1 John 1, 9 that it tells us, for if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? So we know that our sins can be forgiven. So as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins, we confess those sins, we bring them to the Lord, they've been forgiven because Jesus died on the cross for them and we have been forgiven. What is the sin that doesn't lead to death? You've got to remember the context of what's being taken place in here. You've got these men and women saying that they are Christians, these Gnostic teachings, and they're saying, oh, we're believers, but there's this and there's that, and Jesus really isn't the Christ because he couldn't be physical, and it doesn't matter how you live, and you can keep sinning all you want, and he's been addressing this all the time, is there's this idea that I can just, I can say I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want, it doesn't matter who I am, that God is totally content with me saying that I can sin and misrepresent him appropriately. No, that's, that's not we see that. John keeps saying, no, that's not true. That's not what that is. And so as these individuals that are, they're not submitting, they're not confessing, they're not believing that Jesus is who he said he is, and they're running towards sin. And they're embracing that sin. And they're okay with that. Now, that's where I land with this. And you may disagree, and that's okay. I have studied this all week long. I have prayed over this all week long. I have been dialed into this. But I, I want you to look, like we have been in this for three months. We've been studying this, and we keep seeing the same things come up. And so do you think that John at the very end is like, oh, and by the way, zing, 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 here's a new theology, but I'm not going to explain it. No, he's wrapping up. He's giving the highlights, which leads us to the very idea of what point three is. And that's in verse 18. The gospel transforms us. See, he builds off the idea that it transforms us, that we're no longer the old person. But the new person, verse 18 would say, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. He has hit on this over and over and over again. We don't run towards sin. We run away from sin. Every sin that we see in our life, we run away from it. We confess it. We lay it down to the cross. Jesus died for that. We don't have to be slaves to that anymore. If we have been filled with the God of light and the God of love, it will cause us to live the life of Jesus in our life. It will cause us to love those in the family of God and be a beacon of light to the world around us of what God's people look like when they represent him appropriately. Even Jesus, by the way, would call people to stop sinning. And people have said, oh, Jesus never said to stop sinning. I'm like, where do you get these crazy notions? John 5, 1 through 15, with the invalid at the pool, he says, sin no more. John 8, 3 through 11, with the woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? They're gone. Okay, sin no more. He keeps telling, but he doesn't want you to sin. Like, Jesus did not free us from sin to remain a slave to it still. Like, he's freed us. He's not like, you're free. And then he shuts the door on us. And now let me lock it back up. 
That makes no sense. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Maybe you've heard this statement, I didn't come up with it, I'm not that clever. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. This is 1 John 2, 1. He says this, I write these things so you may not sin. But what's he say after that? But if you do, we have an advocate in Christ Jesus our Lord. We can bring those sins to the Lord. We can confess those sins. We can lay those down. We have an advocate. But we would reject the lie that something else is better than God. That we believe at times that there are things that are better joy and hope than Jesus. And as Christians, we know that there is nothing better than than Jesus. God gave his best, not almost his best, his very best. And that is our Savior. See, the Christian is a new creation. uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We we are no longer going to look the same. The old self, we're taking it off every day. We're getting rid of the old self. We're putting on the new self that we have in God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live the righteous life that we once couldn't live, one that reflects God to each other and the world around us. We protect ourselves from evil of the world, knowing that it's, it's... We have Christ now. We're protected. We're overcomers of the world. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that we have overcome the world because Jesus has overcome the world. And if we are hidden in Christ, then we are overcomers of the world. The enemy has no authority over us anymore. Jesus died for that. We're freed from that. Four, the gospel gives us understanding and knowledge. In verse 20, it would say this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's not some fake, false knowledge, some mystic idea like the Gnostics were teaching but the truth of the gospel. And that truth is clear. And that truth is very simple. Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is God. That is is simply what he is saying. That is what we know now as believers in Christ. If this is not where you land with Jesus, then you are not believing truth. You are believing a lie. And if there is no truth in lies, there is no life in that lie that you believe. That's what he's telling us. You must understand who he is. Fully God, fully man. The Messiah come to die for our sins so we can have new life. Not just new life, eternal life. That's what we have. Truth gives forth truth. If God is light, as John told us in 1 John 1, 5, and that light is truth, and we are in him, then we now have that truth that lets us see and understand how the world works and how healing comes through Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Being connected to God gives us intimacy with God. And being connected to God gives us intimate knowledge of Him. Like, have you ever wondered why your siblings have the ability to push your buttons more than anybody else in the world? Have you ever, like, how come they can, like, like half of a sentence, they can get you? 
Like, how do they do that? Because they've been around you so long. And they've seen every part of your life. They know what you love. They know what you hate. They know what irritates you. They know what bugs you. And they can zing you. And you can zing them. Because you have been intimately in relationship with them. And the more you're in relationship with them, the more you know who they are. The same is true with our relationship with Christ and the Father. The more we are in relationship with him, the more we know him, the more we understand him. And I'll tell you, the more I understand him, the more blown away I am by how amazing he is. And then I understand how much I don't understand. Like, you're the same, but like, I just think I know. And then I'm like, I don't know anything. He's so amazing. There's no, there's no end to the depth of who he is. And that's how we are. That's who we are, right? That we're connected to this God that we get to be in relationship with. And so there's this really easy, basic application point that I say a lot. Read God's word. If you want to know God, if you want to know who he is, if you want to understand how he responds and what he does and why he does it, read his word. And you're like, what? read the Bible. Read the Bible. He was revealed to us what we can know about who he is. He wants to show us how great and amazing he is and how much he loves us. And if we have placed our joy and faith and hope in anything other than Jesus, then we have a false hope. And if we have a false hope, what we really have is a false idol. You may wonder, like, John ends this. It seems so bizarre. He's all, little children, keep yourself from idols. You're like, what are you talking about, John? Like, we're talking about prayer, we're talking about eternal life, and I like, stay away from idols, peace. Like, that was it. Like, that's the end of the letter. Like, what do you, what do, you do with that? If you understand what he's saying, what idols do, idols take our focus and our attention off Christ. They promise a, fail, a false hope that, that does not give what it says it's going to give. And he's saying, if there's any idols, keep yourself. He says, little children. What's that phrase? It's an intimate love and affection that he has for his people. Little children, do not let idols get into your life. It will take your attention off the greatest man in the entire world, in the universe, Jesus Christ. For we're far from Christ. We're far from truth. We're far from joy. We're far from hope. We have real hope. We have real truth. We have real access. We have real knowledge. We have real eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. If not, it becomes an idol. Anything that takes your attention off of Jesus is an idol. And you might be like, Simon, I don't have a shrine in my house. I don't have a figurine with little candles and I don't bring offerings to it. Like, what are you talking about? Well, we need to understand, like, when we say an idol, what are we talking about? We say, what is an idol? Well, I have five things that I want to throw out here. <clears throat> One, any object of devotion that distracts us from Christ. Any object of devotion, anything that we find ourselves more devoted to that distracts us from being devoted to Christ would be an idol. I don't know what that is in your life. I don't know, but you know. You know what you are drawn to. You know where you have your devotion. And if that seems to be taking even quarter of a degree more than Jesus. That's an idol. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing, by the way, either. It has to be in its proper place. Two, any sin that separates us from reconciliation and intimacy with him. Sin creates a barrier between our relationship with God. 
And I'm talking, is there, a, is there some kind of sin in your life that you're like, I'm okay with this sin. I love this sin. I do this sin all the time. It doesn't matter. It's okay. I'm fine with it. It's good. I'm going to keep doing it. It's not a big deal. I love this sin. That's a problem. That's breaking relationship with God. Like, how can you be close to God if you're saying that something else is better? How can you face this sin and think that you can still face God and love God? I'm not talking about I, I, I sin. I'm talking about I'm embracing full whole hog sin. Like, this is great. That's what I'm talking about. Is there some kind of sin that you need to confess today that's in your life? And I would say this. I love you enough to say that sin is, is horrible and it's, it's de- de- destroying your relationship with Jesus. The life, the, the hope that you want, the life that you want is, is being like stymied by this sin that you allow to fester and take place and take root in your life. Confess that sin. Reject that sin. Know that it cost God, his son, on the cross so we could have this life. Lay that down. Three, any good works that we perform to try to gain God's favor. come to church so God will be happy with me. I, I, I put tithe in the tithe basket. God will be happy with me. I'm going to serve at this project. I'm going to go on this missions trip. I'm going to be a real good person. I'm going I'm to give things away. If you think that any of that is going to earn God's favor, that is an idol in your life that you think that there's something inherently that you can do that's greater than the gospel and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which can only be received by grace through faith. Period. Four, any person we adore more than him. This can be a hard one, huh? My kids, uh, when they were growing up, they would ask me, who's your favorite? Who do you love most, Dad? And I'm like, Mom. And they're like, besides Mom. I'm like, Derby, our dog. (laughs) And I would say that. But then the truth was, I'm like, I love your mom more. I do. But here's the thing. I love Jesus more than my wife. You're like, that sounds horrible. No, it doesn't. Because loving God more transforms my heart into loving like the Father does, which allows me to love my wife in a better way. And she knows that. She wants me to love Jesus more. I want to be like the Father. I want to show her the love of the Father. I want to show her the love of the Son. And I don't do this perfect. I don't. I mess up all the time. And we have lots of conversations. And we apologize to each other all the time. And we ask for forgiveness all the time. That's, that's what we do. But if there's someone that you adore more than God, that has become an idol in your life. Five, which I think is really relevant today. Any truth claims we prefer to God's inspired word. I mean, look around. Look at the culture. Seems like I see more and more Christians every, every day, every week, every month, every year start to believe what the world says versus what God's word says when it's clear and simple. No, 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 no. I mean, uh, that, that, God got that wrong. Everything else is totally good, but he got that part wrong. Well, let me just pose this. If he got that wrong, then he's wrong then he's not really God. He's not really worth being praised and worshipped. Like if you think that, that God's word is wrong, then you believe 
that the world is more powerful, that the culture is more powerful, that its voice is stronger, and you fear the wrong thing. And I would say that there's hard texts in the Bible. I get it. There's hard truths in the Bible. I'm not denying that. But if you press in and you start asking the questions and exploring, God will show you. He's given us the Holy Spirit to understand what His Word says. We can know what His Word says. He's he's given us the translator to do that. As we read His Word, He shows us. And all these things that I thought were really hard at one point, God has opened my eyes over time to show me, like, oh, that's connected to the bigger story. I didn't even realize that. My brothers, my sisters in Christ, I want us to know that we have eternal life. We have eternal life. This is crazy. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we serve. The eternal God of the universe who loves us has given us eternal life through his son. That is an amazing statement. My friends who don't know Jesus, I would ask you to ask this question of yourself. Where is your hope for eternal life placed? And I would just simply ask you to evaluate it. Do you think that thing that brings you hope and joy and peace will ever fail you? Do you think it really has the ability to give you victory over death from this life to the next? Ask that question. Ask, explore. Be honest with yourself. Don't even have to talk to me. You can do that on your own today, later. You can do that in your bed. You can do that wherever you want. Because there is one that will not leave us or forsake us. Jesus Christ, our Savior, has given his life so we can have life. Let's celebrate that and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. I thank you for giving us eternal life. I thank you that you are a God that hears us. You are a God that brings knowledge and understanding, that you are a God that brings eternal life. You give us access. And you transform us. You're such a good God and we love you so much. I ask that as we come into this time of worship that we would just recognize and praise you and give you glory and honor for saving us, for making us new creations. I thank you for the book of 1 John that we can see and know that we have confidence and assurance of who we are in you. And I ask, Lord, if there are idols in our lives, that we would lay those down today. We would acknowledge them as being lesser than you. We would confess those and know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess them to you. Let us do that, Lord. We love you. We praise you. I thank you for this time. Amen.